Now, this morning, I'm going to be beginning a series after prayer, counseling with the elders. We feel this is a proper thing that should be ministered at this particular time. Cannot finish it properly so you will understand how to apply it in your life without three or four messages on the subject. And what I'm going to be ministering is on the subject of Third John 2, not just the scripture, but the basic subject matter that it carries. Beloved, I pray that in all respects you may prosper and be in good health, just as your soul prospers. Now, this particular subject has probably been one of the big troubles in the church of the Lord Jesus Christ. Either people see a few scriptures on the subject of prosperity, and if they do, they rush off to become rich, and then some others wonder, say, if God wants to prosper me, why doesn't he prosper me? I mean, various ideas. First of all, I want to say that prosperity has to be understood from God's point of view. It is not as the world deems prosperity. The world, if a person has a million dollars, we say he is prosperous. Or if he's got a, a job and prospects of getting yearly increases and finally he'll get the 50 or 100,000 a year, we say, oh, he's really prospering. That person may be dying or may already be dead. That is not God's prosperity not prosperity from God's point of view. God's prosperity encompasses this. Number one, that you may prosper. That does have to do with material things. And be in health. Your body will be healthy. Ecclesiastes is very real. He said, I've seen a great evil on the earth where a man has money and no health to enjoy it. He said, this is vanity and vexation of spirit. So I hope you can understand then that prosperity from God's point of view is more than money by a long way. It's more than material things. It has to do then with health, and the third thing it has to do with is as your soul prospers. That means that you will have sound emotional responses to life, a sound mind by which to see how life really is, strong will to carry out what has to be carried out, the discipline of life, so that your life is filled continually with joy and blessing and the rewards of that which was supposed to come to you. However, I want to say for years, those things were not mine at all. Now, I could read the same as anyone else could read and see that God had promised those things, and yet the fact is, I had none of them. And when I say none, I mean none. They were all stripped away before it was finished, and I had none of that at all. Over the years, that has turned around completely. Now, the reason it has turned around, and this is why I'm taking time to do this, many times a person will preach one idea like, if you tithe, God will prosper you, or if you uh, go to church, God will prosper you. There's no teaching like that in the scripture at all. That is one aspect of a general prosperity. But there's something absolutely fundamental to any Christian life that has to be understood. Until I understood this, nothing really worked in my life at all. It was a continual uh, damaging types of things worked in my life until I began to understand this one thing. Now, there's much more to be said, and I'll say that over the next few weeks, and I'll touch on the principles of blessing themselves, but right now I want to deal with what the Bible deals with, the sovereignty of God. And I'd like you to bow your heads with me, because I say, until I understood this, nothing ever really worked in my Christian life. I knew I was going to heaven, but I certainly had no long, continuing blessing. Heavenly Father, I pray now in the name of Jesus Christ that this particular subject matter we really grasp and can understand, that you assert yourself to be sovereign you assert yourself to be overall. You assert yourself to be the ruler 
with the right to command and direct our lives. And Father, I pray that we're able to understand that and not just understand it, but joyfully submit to it as understanding that that is the greatest security that a man or a woman on the face of the whole earth has, that we have a loving God who really stands ready to direct our lives with perfect wisdom. Grant us to understand this today, Lord, we pray, for we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, to many people, a message on the sovereignty of God is a very threatening message because it really means that someone is asserting in this universe that they and they alone have the right to direct your life, that you do not have the right to direct your life. And for many of us humans, because we come from a sinful stock, Adam has fallen into sin and has passed, we are of that mindset that Adam had when he partook of the tree of knowledge and from that time on tried to direct his life and the result is brought the human race to destruction. All right, so now, dealing with this matter of sovereignty, I'm saying that I had to come to terms with this and many of these things were very difficult. For instance, one of the things that was very difficult in dealing with the sovereignty of God lay in this area. I found it extremely difficult to simply agree with God that he was right all the time, especially in a book that was written 2,000 years ago. For instance, the first three chapters of Romans gave me a great deal of trouble. That Bible talks about we, as a human race, all of us together, are guilty of all of the sins enumerated in Romans 1 through 3. Now, my basic mind rebelled against that because I could hardly allow myself to even think I was guilty of anything too much. I really thought of myself as a fairly decent kind of person, not really, uh, you know, a real trouble. I didn't go around murdering people. I didn't uh, go around ripping them off their wallets out of their pockets, and I didn't do stuff like that. I mean, I'm really a pretty nice guy. I mean, I'm telling myself this now, see. And when God showed me Romans 1 through 3, I spoke out, said, no. I'm not guilty of all these things. I'm not this kind of a person. Now, this went on in my life for a number of years, and I say, while it did, I had these tremendous emotional upheavals, these tremendous terrible things where I felt ripped off all the time. I did not have any degree of prosperity in my life at all, and I found myself, the reason for it later on was I was contending with God. Finally, I brought myself to the place where after some understandings, I submitted to God on every point. Now, that doesn't mean I'm perfectly living every point, but I have totally submitted that to him, and when he speaks, and it's different from what I'm doing, he's right and I'm wrong. There's no more contending. Well, God, how about this? And I feel this, and I think this, and this seems right to me. There's no reasoning with God. I submit to what he says, because I understand what sovereignty is. Now, second thing in God's assertion of sovereignty that I came to is I studied, for instance, like books like Job. Job is a very puzzling book, unless you understand it from the point of view of the sovereignty of God. God allowed something to happen. He didn't make it happen, but he certainly allowed it to happen. I mean, he did not have to do that, but he allowed it to happen. Spoke to Satan, if you consider my servant Job, and Satan says, oh, sure, no wonder he serves you. You put this hedge around him, so forth, you know the story. And God says, you can do anything you want to his property, don't touch his body, and so forth. And then you remember what happened there. And it says in all of this, Job did not sin or charge God foolishly. But he got very close to charging God foolishly. And he didn't do it, but he got very close to it because his friends provoked him and he was starting to reason, the starting the process, the beginning process of reasoning against God's dealings with him. Like, 
Why is this? I want to present myself to God. I want to argue my case. If only I could present my case, then God would see he's treating me wrong, and then he would repent of what he is doing. He would set me free. And he was getting ready to contend against God's position as sovereign. Now, you have to understand this because one of the strongest teachings of Scripture, unless your mind can take hold of it, you kind of like, oh, this is what I feel, and we find ourselves contending against God. Finally, Job comes to the place where he meets with God, and God begins to speak to him. Now, the interesting thing is God never answered him one question that Job had brought up. There's never one question that God ever answered to him. He simply begins to ask him things like, where were you when I created the earth? Where were you? Can you fish out Leviathan with a hook? Can you feed the birds of the air? Can you... Uh, and he goes through this process for about two chapters here, and I'm going to read you the end of it here. Then Job answered the Lord. This is chapter 42. God has been, can you draw out Leviathan with a hook, press down his tongue with a cord? Can you put a rope in his nose? And he's asking him all these things. Can you do this, Job? Then Job answered the Lord and said, I know that thou canst do all things, and that no purpose of thine can be thwarted. Who is this that hides counsel without knowledge? He's referring to himself, because that's the question that God asked him when he first started to talk to him. He said, who is this that hides counsel without knowledge? The words you're speaking, you're totally without knowledge in this affair, and yet you're arguing like you have some. Therefore I have declared that which I did not understand, things too wonderful for me which I did not know, here now and I will speak. I will ask thee, and do thou instruct me, I have heard of thee by the hearing of the ear, but now my eye sees thee, therefore I retract and repent in dust and ashes. And when Job did that, the trial was over, and the blessing of God began to come back on his life again. See, when he stopped the contention with God, the blessing of God began to come back on his life. Now, until we, until I, I'm going to make it my own point, but you must put yourself, because I'm kind of re rehearsing this for your sake, until I learn to do that and stop contending with God. Why have you done this to me? Why is this happening? I don't understand this. What does I run out of I tried to do this, so I've been a good Christian. I, I did this, and you are, see, and stop that contention and say, Lord, I know that you have all power to do whatever you wish to do. I am in your hands. Show me what you want to work out in my life, and I will walk that way. I will not contend with you anymore. Now, that's not the same thing as saying we shouldn't fight against the devil. Most of the time, we're not fighting against the devil. We're contending against God's dealing in our own life. See, and that, that was one of the great problems of my life. Now, look here in Romans 9, if you'd like to follow with me in the Bible. You will see here that God does not answer again. Now, Paul here is dealing with this particular subject, this Romans 9, verse 19. You will say to me then, why does he still find fault for who resists his will? All right, now it's a question. Well, then if God is sovereign and God directs everything and God gets his will and his way, who is resisting him? Notice now, no answer here. On the contrary, who are you, O man, who answers back to God? See, this is what God, who are you? O man. See, he's, remember David's statement, he's thinking about man, and he says, what is man that thou art mindful of him? He's a worm. You know what I mean? Now, we think of ourselves as high up on the, in creation. You know, we're, we're pretty high up there. And that is true if you're considering an amoeba and a rock for comparison. See? You know, you look down there at an even and say, I am really up here. But if you compare yourself with God, we're way down here. And so the reply of God to this person is, on the contrary, who are you, old man, who answers back to God? The thing molded will not say to the molder, why did you make me like this, will it? 
Or does not the potter have right over the clay to make this from the same lump, one vessel for honorable use and another for common use? Now, many times we hear among Christians, Oh, Lord, I wish you'd made me so I'd be six foot four. I wish you'd have made me with a different shaped nose. Why couldn't my eyebrow, why couldn't I have, I wish I had been, I wish that I could have. See, all of this thing, without understanding it, is really a very clear evidence that we are contending against what our Maker has done. He has molded us. Psalm 139 is very clear about that. He has molded us. The Bible says the hairs of our head are all numbered. And here in Psalms 139, was very enlightening to us if we wish to look. He's talking about God being totally omniscient and all-wise. Then verse 13, Thou didst form my inward parts. Thou didst weave me in my mother's womb. I will give thanks to thee, for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Wonderful are thy works, and my soul knows it very well. My frame was not hidden from thee when I was made in secret and skillfully wrought in the depths of the earth. Thine eyes have seen my unformed substance, and in thy book they were all written. Now listen to this, please. The days that were ordained for me, when as yet there was not one of them. Now, what do we gather from this? Well, before I was born, God is saying, the number of days that I'll live on this earth were already written in God's book. See, in our minds, it's, well, why, how come, now, it means out here, some part, somewhere out here, I'm going to die by God's will, and uh, that's right. See, the day that God determined to bring me forth, and that's really way back in eternity, but he brings me forth, before I was born, the days that were ordained for me were already written. Now, I'm going to die out here someplace. I don't know where. That may be tomorrow. That may be five minutes from now. Maybe 50 years from now. I have no idea. I'm not concerned about that at all. But I used to be. How can I make myself live longer? I wish to tell you I can't. I can make myself live shorter, but I can't make myself live longer. And if I make myself live shorter, I will find out in the end God knew about that before I did. See, so what I'm saying, Lord, therefore, I want to live the days that are ordained for me. I will therefore submit to your sovereignty and live out those days submitted to you. Now, see, there has to be an attitude of mind which begins to say to God, you have the right, I do not have the right, therefore, you speak and I will follow. All right, now, let's take a look at some of these scriptures here, how God establishes what he says about that. First of all, God states that he owns everything. Now, here is where many people fail in their prosperity. I will that you prosper and be in health, even your soul prosper. They fail because they don't understand that God owns everything. And when he says he owns it, he doesn't mean that, well, sure, God owns it. We know that. But he means I own it. You do not own it. As a matter of fact, he will say later on, I'll read that to you, you are a sojourner and a tenant on this earth. See, the earth is his. We are simply passing through on this earth. We can use it for a little while, and we pass on to our, hopefully, heaven. If you Well, it will be heaven if you know the Lord. If it isn't, then to destruction. All right. Now, Genesis 14, 19. Melchizedek met Abraham on the return of that battle with the five kings. He had just set Lot free and all the people free, and they were following him, and he meets Melchizedek. And he, Melchizedek now, blessed him and said, Blessed be Abraham of God Most High, possessor of heaven and earth. And blessed be God most high, who has delivered your enemies into your hand, and he gave him a tenth of all. Now notice what he asserted. This Melchizedek, who was a type of Christ, might actually have been a manifestation of the Lord Jesus himself. I don't know. Now notice what it says. God most high is what of heaven and earth? 
possessor. See? Oh, I own this land right here. I've got it on a deed. It says, we own nothing. We can claim we do, but that will get us into trouble. I own nothing. God owns it all, and he lets it into my hands for a temporary time. See, you can't take it with you. You'll find out you think you own it. See what happens at the end. You'll see, you leave it, and you don't take one thing with you at all. Only what you have sent forward, you take with you. Only what you give up, you get to keep. All right. So then he says, it is God who is possessor of heaven and earth, and it is he who has delivered your enemies into your hands. Now here again, we challenge the sovereignty of God when we say, yes, and I formed a great strategy here, and I put together this great plan, uh, and I went out there, and, uh, and at nighttime we uh, jumped upon the enemy, and we defeated them completely, and uh, it was a brilliant strategy. Yes, that was really great, Abraham. Thank you all. Thank you all. We don't know that we are contending here with the sovereignty of God. It is God who has delivered your enemies into your hands. See? Now, until we understand that, it is God, 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 it is God. And therefore, he's the source of all praise, honor, glory, and blessing. Amen. Now, second scripture, Deuteronomy 10, 14. Behold, to the Lord your God belong heaven and the highest heavens, the earth and all that in it. Now, let's go over that. To him belong the heavens and the highest heavens, and the earth, and what's next? All that is in it. Gold, silver, cattle on a thousand hills, amoeba, rocks, trees, and what? Me and who? Say it out loud. Say me. 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 See, that's the assertion. You belong to me. Whether you recognize it or not, whether you resist it or not, whether you fight it, the worst sinner who ever lived, the Adolf Hitlers and the Stalins and so forth, and the Alexander the Great, all belong to God, though they rejected his sovereignty and came to ruin. We, thank God, have a privilege of accepting his sovereignty and walking in his way. Now, turn with me to this wonderful revelation here in First Chronicles, the 29th chapter. And here we find this very, very successful man, David the king. And you're going to see why he was successful. There are other scriptures that will bring him into being in exactly the same way. Now, I'm going to start here in 1 Chronicles 29, verse 10. So David blessed the Lord in the sight of all the assembly. And David said, Blessed art thou, O Lord God of Israel, our Father, forever and ever. Thine, O Lord... Now, here's this understanding that David has about the sovereignty of God. Thine, O Lord, is the greatness and the power and the glory and the victory and the majesty. Indeed, everything that is in the heavens and the earth, thine is the dominion, O Lord, and thou dost exalt thyself as head over all. Now, notice the position that God is taking. See, we are never owners of anything on this earth. God says, it is all mine, and I am head over all. And it's up to me to distribute it as I see fit. Now, sometimes what happens, he distributes into our hands, and we don't say, now, Lord, you place this in my hands for your kingdom and for your good. What do you want me to do with it? We say, this is mine, and I will determine what I will do with this particular amount of money here, or riches, or our emotions, or our brains, or our life, or whatever we have. Both riches and honor come from thee, and thou dost rule over all. And in thy hand is power and might, and it lies in thy hand to make great and to strengthen every one. See, it lies in thy hand power, not from myself. God raises up one, puts down another, the Bible says. Now therefore, our God, we thank thee and praise thy glorious name. But who am I 
He hears this man who said, what is man that thou art mindful of him? Often he speaks this way. Who am I, he said. And who are my people? The Israelites. What are we? He said, the little teeny nation. But he said, you placed your name upon us, and therefore we are great because of your... He didn't think he was great because of his great skill. Who am I? And who are my people? That we should be able to offer as generously as this. Now notice, for all things come from thee, and from thy hand we have given thee. In other words, he's saying... The offerings that we gave you to build this temple, Lord, we didn't give you anything. All things come from your hand, and we have given to thee that which is in thy hand. And for all things come from thee, and from thy hand we have given thee. For we are sojourners before thee. Sojourner, just a person passing through. We are sojourners before thee, and tenants, as our fathers were, all of our fathers, our days on the earth are like a shadow, there is no hope. O Lord our God, all this abundance that we have provided to build thee a house for thy holy name, it is from thy hand, and all is thine. Now, when he says that we are tenants, what is he asserting? All of us, he said. And all our fathers, the same way, Abraham and all the Jewish people that came down. What is he asserting when he says we are all sojourners and tenants? What is he saying? We own nothing. Amen? We use the earth, and we pay rent for its use. Very important concept to understand. God retains, because actually tithing, see, is a symbol to the person who understands it of recognizing God's sovereignty. And when a person doesn't tithe, they're saying, I don't believe God has a right to ask me a tenth or a fifth or anything. I'll give him what I please, and if I don't feel like doing it, I don't do it, or I give it where I want, when I want, how I want. God says, you're a tenant's. Now, you can imagine if you had an apartment house or a house and you rent it out to somebody and the person says, I'm a tenant. So you say, all right, I'll let you in as a tenant here. And then you sign up an agreement. And the person says, I've changed my mind. I'm in here and I'm not getting out. And furthermore, I'm not going to pay rent. And furthermore, I'll pay it if I want to pay it. I'll pay half of the rent or I'll pay a third of it or I'll pay all. I might pay none of it. I'll pay. You say, you're going to get out of here. We'll take action upon you, and eviction will take place immediately. All right, now, there needs to be something very clearly understood there when they use the word tenant. We are a tenant. I say, all of that I had to recognize and submit to in God, and there were long periods of time, brothers and sisters, in my life that two things went together. I did not recognize the sovereignty of God except theologically. Oh, yes, God's sovereign. Oh, yes, oh, yes. See, like that. But it did not get down in my spirit that God is sovereign, and I am a sojourner, and I am a tenant on this earth, and I'm here for one purpose, to carry out what he wants, and I'm going to give myself to it. That took years to bring it about. But I want to tell you, right along with the years of grasping that, were years of sadness and pain and heartache, and finally the destruction of my family, is all you don't know my history took place, then finally restoration, as I recognize the sovereignty of God, and then God said, you go back to the wife of your youth, and you establish covenant with her again, it was not like God saying, would you do this, Jim? I, I, would, I would really like you to do this. It was still the sovereign speaking. Are you ready to obey me? I am sovereign. I said, yes, Lord. See? And out of it has come tremendous blessing. See, once that was clearly established, out of my life began to be this endless blessing and is going on to this day. And I believe it will continue to the day that I die unless I make the foolish mistake of taking back into my hands again that I am the sovereign of my life. It is God who is the sovereign of my life. All right, now there are many, many other scriptures that indicate that, but read those that I've given you. Now the second thing is that his sovereignty must be upheld and submitted to 
And if you'll turn with me now to the book of Genesis, you will see here how God does this, his establishing of that sovereign place. And this is the second chapter of Genesis, and I'm going to read verse 7 now. Then the Lord God formed the man of the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and man became a living being. Now notice he didn't ask the man if you want to be created. He simply created the man. Breathed into his nostrils, I am going to create a man. Now he does this out of love, he does this out of wisdom, he does this out of understanding and knowledge, but regardless of how it's done, he did not consult the man. He simply created the man. Now have you ever heard this statement? I didn't ask to come to this world. I didn't ask to be born. Now I am born. It wasn't my fault. I'm here. Now somebody owes me something I feel. You ever heard that kind of thing? God says, that's rebellion. That is not submitting to my sovereignty. See, God brings man into the earth, and then he creates a garden. He didn't ask man about which garden you want created. Do you like this kind of flowers or that kind? Maybe you like pink instead of yellow. Maybe you like, uh, see, he simply plants it. He puts man in the garden, and he says, now here is the rules of the game. He doesn't ask Adam, let's sit down and negotiate a constitution here. He simply says, here's the rules of the game. All right. Now, then the Lord formed man of the dust of the ground, breathed into his nostrils a breath of life, and man became a living being. And the Lord God planted the garden toward the east in Eden, and there he placed the man whom he had formed. And then it goes on to tell how he caused all the trees to grow. And then in the midst of the garden, he put the tree of life and also the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Now, this knowledge of good and evil, I'd like to tell you what it is. The knowledge of good and evil, I think, is what happens to me when I start contending against God that my reasoning is better than God's reasoning. See, I know good and evil too, Lord, and I know you say that this is not good, but uh, frankly, I've been thinking about it, and I think this is best. See, let's take this question of the, God says, I hate divorce. All right. Now, God does not want divorce. I tell people there may be reasons we're forced into divorce, but I'm telling you God is never for it. He is always on the side of reconciliation. He wants families to continue together. Is there any way to do it? There's just no question about that in Scripture, what God wants. Now, sometimes it happens, though, that it comes about. I'm not getting into that today. I've seen this other little lady over here, and uh, she's just a beautiful blue eyes, looks at me so adoringly, just absolutely, oh, so wonderful, and just so forth, and therefore I'm going... That is never God's revelation to a man. It is always Satan breaking in, just exactly like he did in the Garden of Eden. I'll read to you what he did here. Garden of Eden, chapter 3. He comes into this garden... Uh, I told you what he said, the tree of knowledge. The tree of knowledge, remember, is my contending against God. God says, do this. I contend against him and say, I have a better plan. All right, third chapter here. Satan comes into the garden, and the woman said to the serpent, from the fruit of the trees of the garden we may eat, but from the fruit of the tree which is in the middle of the garden, God has said, you shall not touch it or eat from it lest you die. And the serpent said to the woman, you shall not surely die. In other words, contending. Well, I know God says that, but I tell you, he's wrong. All right. For God knows that the day you eat from it, your eyes will be open, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. Lie. They would know good and evil, but they would not know what to do with that knowledge. When the woman saw the tree was good for food and was a delight to the eyes, and the tree was desirable to make one wise, she took from its fruit and ate. She gave also to her husband, and he ate with her. And the eyes of them both were open, and they knew they were naked. And Adam, by his action, along with Eve, released hell into this earth. 
because they took the sovereignty into their own hands. We now know how to run our lives. We know what to do. We know how to run it, and the whole earth turned dark, and to this day, we still have exactly the same problem. I'll show you that even though the curse of God can be on a nation, even in the middle of that curse, men can rise up who, by following God's way, are blessed. Right in the middle of darkness, light rises. All right, so keep in mind clearly now what we said here. His sovereignty must be upheld. Now, when Adam ate of that fruit, when Eve ate of that fruit, they infringed upon God's sovereignty, and God had to act in judgment. He had no choice. His sovereignty must be upheld. He must assert his authority and maintain it. He's the only one rightful ruler in this world. Satan works to get man to reject his sovereignty, which we've already talked about. Satan's fall came about exactly the same way. And you read that in Isaiah 14, 13 to 15. We won't turn to it because I'm trying to maintain time here. Now I want you to turn with me to Psalms and you'll see what the nations are doing. Exactly the same thing. Second Psalm. And this verse 1, Why are the nations in an uproar and the peoples devising a vain thing? The kings of the earth take their stand, and rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed. Now, here's the counsel they take. Let us tear their fetters apart and cast away their cords from us. In other words, I'm not going to listen to God anymore. I know what it says here, but I'm not going to obey it. Or I know what the, I'm not going to do it. Here's what I think is a better thing. I'm going to do this better thing. And they begin. Now, the Bible says the nations of the earth take counsel together. How may we cast God's fetters off from us? He who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord scoffs at them. Then he will speak to them in his anger and terrify them in his fury. But now listen to King David. Listen to it very carefully. But as for me, I have installed my king upon Zion, my holy mountain. And what happened to David the king? It says, in those days, great nations brought him tribute, and God raised him up to be the greatest of all Israel's kings. Why? Because he said, I am not rebelling against you, God. I have installed my king upon Zion, my holy mountain. You are my God. You are my king. You are the leader of Israel. I will follow you. And God raised him up out of the dust to become the shepherd of Israel and the greatest of all kings that Israel had ever known. Hallelujah. All right, now understand then that this principle of sovereignty must thoroughly be submitted to or we bring upon ourselves all kinds of pain. God will not allow any infringement on his sovereignty. I'm going to draw some conclusions now. Everything is God. And if you prosper materially, it will be because God releases the things that are his into your hand. Now, we'll read some scriptures about that later. Uh, you will see here that prosperity and wealth are from God. They are not uh, from your own brains or your own ability. They are from God. God uses your brains, but that's not where it comes from. As a matter of fact, the prosperity of the wicked and the prosperity of the godly are two different things. The Bible says in Proverbs 13:22, the wealth of the sinner is stored up for the righteous. See, God allows them to be like custodians of this until you're ready to handle it. And when you properly recognize the sovereignty of God and submit yourself and allow God to really direct your life into the channels for which you were put on this earth by God, that wealth will be transferred to you to be used for his kingdom. But he is not going to transfer that wealth to you to be squandered on ostentatious living. He will let the wicked do that because that is wickedness. Now, sometimes Christians, the minute they get some money, immediately... Now I can get this and do this and this, and I'm over here, and then I will just say, and they forget completely, God, this is not mine. I'm a tenant. You put this in my hand to be used for your kingdom. What do you want me to do with this? See, then it's up to God to tell you what to do. He is the sovereign. Now, on the other hand, the righteous says, Deuteronomy 8, 18, 
But you shall remember the Lord your God, for it is he who is giving you power to make wealth. It does not come out of our own brains. It is he who gives you power to make wealth, that he may confirm his covenant to you as he has done to our fathers. First conclusion, everything is God's. And if you prosper materially, it will be because God releases the things that are his into your hand. It still remains his, for we are never owners of anything but only tenants and sojourners. God will not allow infringement of his sovereignty to go unchallenged. He is gracious and slow to bring judgment. But unless repentance and restitution take place, judgment is certain. Colossians 1.25, For he who does wrong will receive the consequences of the wrong which he has done. And there is no respect of persons with God. Saint or sinner, it's all the same thing. Whatever you sow, you will reap. Because he's sovereign. He cannot allow his sovereignty to be challenged. He must respond and overthrow that attempt to unseat him. By the way, I want to stop here right now. How many of you understand, you think in your heart, what I just said now? Could I see your hands if you understand that? Well, it seems like a pretty good grouping. Well, then I'm going to ask us to pray. I'd like you to bow your heads with me. How many of you know, really from the Word of God, that you must submit yourself as sovereign to God? Would you raise your hand before him right now and say, I know it, O Lord. Amen. Then I'm going to pray. Father... I pray right now as I speak these words to you, but I'm also speaking to your people, Lord, that we'll reflect on each one of these. And Lord, I pray that you'll speak to our hearts. Oh, Lord, is my heart and life and mind, is it submitted to you as sovereign? Dear, I realize my life is not my own, but that I'm bought with a price, and I'm to glorify you, my sovereign. Do I realize the days that I have are all numbered? And Lord, that my life is in your hands and it's not mine. I submit my life to you. Do I realize the plan for my life is not up to me to determine what I wish to do, but it's up to me to find out what you wish me to do and then carry that out. Lord, I submit that plan to you. I submit myself to you that you might reveal your plan for my life and work out your plan in my life. Lord, my home, if I'm married, and my home, if I'm at home, have I submitted myself and my home, my father, my mother, my children, my husband, my wife, have I submitted these things to you, Father? Search my heart, O oh God, I pray. I pray the money that you've given into my hands for me to be a manager of. Have I really submitted it to you, Lord, or do I use it like it's my own? Everything that I have on this earth, Lord, if I have a ministry as all of us do. Lord, is that your ministry or is it my ministry that I'm building? Oh God, we submit ourselves to you here today, now. You be the sovereign in our life. You rule our days and our nights. You reveal your plan to us. You carry out your will through us and be glorified in our lives. We ask that, Father, in Jesus' name. Amen. Now I want to bring the second part of this message. The law of blessing and cursing. The law of blessing and cursing is a part of the law of judgment. Christians, by the way, should know about the law of blessing from experience and should never know about the law of cursing. Unfortunately, some Christians know about the law of cursing and relatively little blessing. They don't know about it, they just know it happens. Now listen carefully to this. Blessing comes on the one who submits himself to God's sovereignty. Very clear thing. Blessing comes on the one and follows his ways. 
but the fullness of the blessing may not be seen until the succeeding generations, even the third and fourth generation. Now, this is why you oftentimes hear me say my plan or my hope is to raise up preachers that are preachers of greater sermons than I've ever preached, builders of greater churches than I've ever dreamed of building, that they will send out more teams in the future, they will establish more, see mightier apostles than I've ever dreamed of being or seeing or knowing. Always that aim, because what I realize is I've understood something of the sovereignty of God, something of the blessing of God, something of the reality of God, and I want to pass that along to you. But I hope you will take it and not have to go through all of the down things that so many people go through because they don't take what they've learned and go with it. Because if you do that, you put a right foundation in your life, and then you can add to it things that I never had time to learn. So the next generation can be greater than this one. The one following can be greater. The one following greater, that's God's plan. Ever greater with the blessing of God. So just me being good in my generation can have an effect of succeeding generations. And the same is true of cursing. Now, cursing comes on the one who rejects God's sovereignty and refuses his ways. But the full outworking of the curse may not be seen until succeeding generations appear. Remember the Bible says the man that does evil, what happens? That's visited upon the children, what? To the third and the fourth generation. You understand that? See, it's not just what we do. It's what we plant in our children and plant in theirs and plant in theirs. Now, fortunately, hallelujah, the succeeding generations can break the curse, but they must break it by confession, faith, and persistent action to establish God's sovereignty and ways in them. Very important that we do that. Now, I'll give you an example of that, how we can affect future generations. God told him, the children of Israel, when he brought them into the promised land, he said, this land is mine, you're tenants and sojourners, you can find that all the way through the Bible. This land is mine, I've given it to you, it's farms that you didn't plant, it's houses you didn't build, I've driven out those which were before you because they were wicked, they served other gods, they were idol worshippers and they did abomination before me and I have cast them out of the land. And I bring you into this land of blessing, but if you do the things which those which were here before you did, I will cast you out of the land in the same way. Now then he told them what to do with the land. And one of the laws that he gave them is every seventh year you don't plant. See, now, well, wait a minute, is this my farm or is this your... Oh, it's your farm, right? That's right. After a while, the Israelites started disobeying God's ordinance. He said, the seventh year you don't plant. You leave that ground fallow, and what grows in itself, you leave that for the poor. You may eat out of it a little bit, but don't reap down that field. You leave it for the poor, and you'll let that land rest. And he said, I will give you enough in the sixth year to go all the way to the end of the eighth year so you will not be without food. You will not be without good things. The land is mine. See, now what God is doing is asserting his authority. He's asserting his sovereignty. The land is mine. You plant for six years, let that land rest the seventh year. You work for six days, see, the days are not yours, you rest the seventh day. Here's this money that I give you. You take a tenth part and you honor me with the first fruits of all your increase. Very clear. He's asserting his sovereignty over every aspect of man's life. Now, after a while, the Israelites did not do this. Maybe they reasoned something like this. We've had a great crop here in the sixth year, but, you know, the more I think of it, this is really an archaic and outmoded uh, kind of an approach to things. I mean, really, when you stop and think of it, uh, you know, if I plant this, it's going to come up, and I'm going to give my tithes to God and money to the church, and uh, I can give to the poor, and I will have extra for my old age. And it just makes no sense to let this land. I think I'm going to do it and see what happens. 
And you know what they did? They planted the land and nothing happened. And then they planted it again. And they went on like that 490 years, receiving individual effects of the curse. I'm sure sickness increased. I'm sure sin increased. I'm sure rebellion among children increased. All kinds of terrible things increased. But the land, it brought forth, and they had famines and pestilences. But, but here they were going along until a certain period of life, and then God casts them out of the land and takes them up into Babylon and scatters them all over that part of the area. And he said, this land shall lie here for 70 years until it has been made up. The rest which I commanded for the land, it will lie fallow. And then I will bring you back after that time and establish you in your land again. See, once again, asserting his authority over that land. We simply cannot reject or go against the authority of God in these areas. See, there we must submit ourselves to his sovereignty. Now, notice what they did, though. Though the people who did it did not get the immediate and full effect of the curse, they put it on these families out here who 70 years were slaves in Babylon as a result of that. See, many times what we do will be seen in our children and our children's children under the third and the fourth generation, either good or bad. If it's good, wow. If it's bad, see, that type of thing. All right, now, Malachi, the same thing. He's speaking to the Jews here. They want to know certain things, and he said, You have been arrogant against me, says the Lord. Now, that's an interesting kind of a statement. If you'd like to turn to Malachi, the third chapter here. And once again, dealing with the same area of sovereignty. See, that's the thing that we have to understand. He's dealing with this. Third chapter and uh, verse 6. For I, the Lord, do not change. Therefore, you, O sons of Jacob, are not consumed. From the days of your fathers, you have turned aside from my statutes, as my sovereignty, I've issued my statutes, and have not kept them. Return to me, and I will return to you, says the Lord of hosts. But you say, how shall we return? Will a man rob God? Yet you are robbing me. But you say, how have we robbed thee? In tithes and offerings. As a matter of fact, this area of contending against God, I'll deal with this, this area of contending against God in the areas of money is really to say God has no right to tell me what to do with any part of my money. God has no right to tell me what to do with any part of my life. God has no right to tell me what to do with my house, my land, my car, my wife, my husband, my children, my... In other words, we reject God's sovereignty. God says, I make statements and you can agree to do it or not to do it. If you do it, you are submitting to my sovereignty. If you resist it, you're rejecting my sovereignty. So then he contends with the nation of Israel. He says, you're robbing me, even the whole nation of you. How are we robbing you? In tithes and offerings. Then he goes on to explain this to them. And he offers them a blessing if they will bring the whole tithe into the storehouse that there may be food in my house. And test me now in this, says the Lord of hosts, if I will not open for you the windows of heaven and pour you out a blessing until it overflows. Then I will rebuke the devourer for your sake. See, then I will. Not now, because you have rejected my authority. And see, God's cursing acts like this. God doesn't actually say, I curse you. It isn't like that. All he does is lift his hand from a part of our life. For instance, like if his hand is not over me for my health's sake, then what will happen? I will get sick. And I can assure you of that. If I am violating in some way his law in that area, he simply lifts his hand. I have forced that hand back. The same thing in, in money. If I insist on doing something contrary to him, he simply lifts his hand, and the destroyer, Satan, the robber, killer, thief, murderer, he is able then to attack me directly as a result of that. So that's how that works. Now that's why he says, then I will rebuke. So all he comes down to the devourer, get away. And the blessing is back there again. Then I will rebuke the devourer for you, 
so that it may not destroy the fruits of the ground, nor will your vine in the field cast its grapes, says the Lord of hosts. And all nations shall call you blessed, for you shall be a delightsome land, says the Lord. Your words have been arrogant against me, says the Lord. Yet you say, where have we spoken against thee? You have said it is vain to serve God. In other words, doing it God's way doesn't really pay off. What profit is it that we have kept this charge and that we have walked mourning before the Lord of hosts? So now we call the arrogant blessed. Not only are the doers of wickedness. See, this is what the Christians are saying. Well, the wicked, look at what they get. And they get all these. Remember David in the 37th Psalm? Well, the wicked are even built up. No bands in their death. They get all these. And how come? Said, then I went into the house of God and I understood their end. Said, then I said, oh, my God. Like a dumb beast I was before you making all these noises. Then those who feared the Lord spoke to one another, and the Lord gave attention and heard it, and a book of remembrance was written before him for those who fear the Lord and who esteem his name. And they will be mine, says the Lord of hosts, on the day that I prepare my own possession, and I will spare them as a man spares his own son who serves him. So you will again distinguish between the righteous and the wicked, between one who serves God and one who does not serve him. So then we get ourselves down here to the end of this message. And here it is. I strove in every way that I know. I prayed. I fasted. I cried out. I did good works. I did everything under heaven to, quote, make God bless me. And God never did. I would get a little bit, and then boom. And then look, boom, boom. Boom. So nothing ever really worked in my life. There was no real joy, no real happiness, no real contentment. Like a moment of like little respite, but then back into it again. Until, I'll tell you the until, until I said, God, what you tell me to do, I will do. You have the right to tell me how long I'll live. You have the right to tell me what city I'll live in. You have the right to tell me who I will marry. You have the right to send me whatever children you wish to send to me. They are your gift to me, Lord, and I'm going to treat them that way. You have the right to... See, I began to state these things very systematically to God, and wherever I found myself contending against God, I stopped contending against God, and from that point on, I tell you, the blessing of God began to emerge in my life, and it has never stopped until this day. Now, I want every one of you here to have that continuing blessing of God. If there's some place in your life that there's a part where you say, I have the right here. Oh, this is my area. I, see, let go immediately. Admit that God is sovereign in every area of your life. You are a tenant on this earth. You are a sojourner. You are his creation. He owns you. He owns everything that you have. Submit it to him. Say, Lord, it all belongs to you. And all I want you to do ever is tell me what to do. And I will do it, even up to my life. Amen. Hallelujah. See, and if you do that, you'll be set free. Now, if you can get this part right, the rest of it that I'm going to preach in the weeks to come will be a joy to listen to. You'll delight in it because you'll see how the blessing of God can be turned loose in your life and how the cursing can be avoided. And see, that's all it takes. Once I've got the sovereignty right, once I'm here for His glory and His glory alone, once I'm here to exalt Him and no other purpose, and I know that and everything belongs to Him and nothing belongs to me, I'm His servant then over here, it's very simple to avoid the cursing. I just don't want to do those things anymore. And very simple to obtain the blessing because that's exactly what I wish to do. God says, do this and be blessed. I'll say, Lord, I would love to do what you want me to do. See, David the king, I have installed my king on Mount Zion. He is my king. And I follow him. And God lifted up this shepherd boy up to the heights and maintained. Then when he sinned, 
down he went until he repented, and then God raised him. And he has still remembered Israel as the great king. He's remembered among us Christians as the great king, the great man who submitted to the sovereignty of God. Hallelujah. Let's bow our heads in a word of prayer, shall we? And this is the question I'm going to ask you now. I ask how many of you here today have heard this message? You've already prayed a prayer, sort of. But I want a clear, visible symbol to God. Lord, I submit myself to your sovereignty. You are king, Lord. I am a tenant. I am a sojourner. My life belongs to you. Everything that I have or am or ever will be is totally yours, O oh God. And I want you to reveal your life to me and reveal your plan to me. Because I want to follow that plan. If you believe that, I want you to stand up right now before the Lord. Gracious God, these that are standing have said one thing to you. Now, Lord, I don't know if they fully understand what they said, but I know by your grace that isn't the important thing. The important thing is that they've made this move from a heart that has been moved by your Holy Spirit. And Lord, if they don't understand fully, I know by your Holy Spirit you will teach them. By the counselors and the ones that you send to them to teach them the Word of God, they will grasp it piece by piece how to live out that sovereignty relationship. You're king, O oh Lord. Father, we've grown up in a, a democracy where we can denounce the president and we can denounce the senate and we can denounce the mayor and we can denounce everybody. And that's called freedom. But Lord, let us make very sure we never denounce you, we never contend with you, and we never argue with you. You are king, O oh Lord. And Father, I pray that we also get a healthy respect for those you placed in authority over us. You told us not to carry on that way, not to contemn a ruler. And Father, help us to learn that too, because those powers are established by you. And Father, help us to walk in that gentle way. Help us to walk in that submitted way. Help us to walk as we really are subjects of your great kingdom, Lord. And we're here to establish your kingdom. We're here to let people know in this city and all over the world that, Lord, we are submitted men to your kingdom, to your rule. Bless now, Father, we pray. We ask it in Jesus' name, and I'd like every one of you to say a word that means so be it. Say amen in a good, loud way. Amen. amen.